0: Welcome to Black Lines and Billables, a podcast about legal technology and innovation and law firm associate success and development. Today, we're exploring the legal innovation side of the house, and I'm here with Gabe Roth, founder and executive director of Fix the Court. For those of you who are not familiar, Fix the Court is a national nonpartisan organization dedicated to Supreme Court reform, intending, in its own words, to take the court to task for its lack of accountability and transparency and to push Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's eight associate justices to enact basic yet critical reforms to make the court more open and honest. Gabe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Christian. Absolutely. Well, before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how it was that you came to create Fix the Court? Sure. So
1: my background is actually in journalism, and broadcast journalism specifically. I was a a local TV news producer uh, coming out of grad school and uh, moved up to D.C., was going to continue doing that, but switched to the last minute to do something that I thought a little more meaty, and that was uh, political consulting. And I've been doing that for about a decade now. Uh, had all sorts of clients on uh, energy, environment, healthcare, education, uh, doing everything from lobbying to PR to research and, and op-ed writing. And the last place that I worked in DC had all these clients that had issues that eventually came before the Supreme Court. And it seemed to me incredible that in 2017, or I guess it was really 2014 back then, you weren't able to experience the court live and unfiltered unless you paid to fly to D.C. and get a hotel room and and stand in line for sometimes six hours, sometimes six days. So I I saw a need for a greater effort towards uh, pushing the justices to open uh, for broadcast specifically, and then over time, over the course of about six months, I realized that it wasn't just the broadcast issue that made the court... uh, not modern and not accountable. So I added a bunch of other fixes. I like to call them to to try to push the court to be uh, more modern and to uh, activate best practices and transparency. And uh, and here we are.
0: Excellent. Uh, so in terms of the project itself, kind of when did it get off the ground? Sure. What were the early origins? And kind of get us up to speed from day one through where we are today.
1: Sure. So so initially I had. This thing called the Coalition for Court Transparency, and that was really just focused on the broadcast issue, live audio and video from the Supreme Court. And uh, in, in exploring this issue, I had these panels with former solicitors general and uh, C-SPAN executives and uh, uh, uh the former federal judges. And I realized that it was, you know, instead of just having this one issue, I needed to to expand it. So I went to the New Venture Fund, who was funding me on this one issue broadcast in the Coalition for Court Transparency. And I said, look, we need to see if we can expand this to, to, to other issues. And that included things like uh, the fact that the justices don't have a code of conduct, they're the only federal judges that are not required to follow the code of conduct for U.S. judges. Uh, they don't uh, have to file their financial disclosures online, and they don't have to mark off their Travel and stock sale until much later than the rest of the federal government. They don't tell us what their public appearances are. They they can own all sorts of different uh, stocks and don't give reasons for recusal. So there are all these issues that just make the Supreme Court behind this, uh, or the 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 uh, the leaders in opacity in the uh, in the in the federal government. It, it all just came together in in, uh, in October of 2014, and and it was about a month's worth of discussion. And and all of a sudden, you know, we I, I launched in, in mid November. Of 2014 with these ads in the metro uh, and a few metro stations across D.C., and it had these nine different columns, and it said, uh, uh, who is uh, the most powerful, least accountable in, in in Washington? So that was for a week, and you, I think, went to most-lease.com. Uh, that was the, the website. And then after a week, all those nine columns turned into the faces of the nine justices and all the different issues that I mentioned in terms of ethics and recusals and public appearances and broadcasts. Those issues were like little bubbles around the justices. So um, and actually, one of the sons of the of the, the, the justices told me once that uh, it, it, he was never so scared of his father as seeing his face uh, in the metro like that, looking like a <laughs> lo- looking like a supervillain. Is what to, to quote him directly. I won't say which justice that which justice the son that was, but that was a little bit. Uh, Strange, and I guess maybe uh, uh, a compliment. I don't. know. Anyway, so 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 yeah. So so we start off with all these issues, and there's just like different tracks in terms of how to get them uh, activated, right? So just to take one for example, the financial disclosures. The justices are like all other federal officials, part of that post Watergate law that says you've got to put your finances in a form and give it to the public every year. That's been around since about 1978, but they're not put online, so. I get them every year, and I put them online myself. Um, But you know, I've been constantly working with the Committee of Financial Disclosure at the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts, who's in charge of getting these forms and saying, "Look, you need to do something better." And this past year, they've giving out thumb drives to everybody, so with with the disclosure forms on, with the disclosure reports on them. So so so, just each sort of each fix has its own track in terms of who I gotta lobby, who I gotta meet with, who I gotta spend time talking to and explaining the issues. And and there's different ways to put pressure on each branch and sub branch of government. And and that's sort of how it goes from on a day to day basis.
0: Excellent. Well, that I think that's a great tangible kind of example of an issue. Just just to set the stage for our listeners and, and help them kind of in their minds, I understand the breadth of the project. Let's quickly at like a thirty thousand foot view tick through the 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 so called fixes on the website. Um, and based on the my my research, you've got six buckets. Is that right? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. So there's so there's broadcast access is, is the first one. It's probably the way that most people get to fix the court because they're most familiar with the issue that there are no cameras in the Supreme Court. But it, it's more than just that. It's, it's, we want live audio and video for oral arguments and opinion announcements at the Supreme Court and at all the federal courts of appeals. So currently, uh, of the 13 federal courts of appeals, two of them, uh, sorry, three of them now allow video, but it's very Haphazard. One does live video. One does uh, so that's Ninth Circuit. One does uh, allows video maybe once a year for major cases. And then the Third Circuit uh, does video and releases it 24 hours later. They just started uh, video recording oral arguments uh, earlier this year. Uh, Live audio, same thing. It's just the Ninth Circuit, though the Fourth Circuit did allow live audio for uh, one of the Trump travel ban cases. And uh, I've been working with the clerks and circuit executives and all of them to push them to try to get uh, live audio, if not live audio, same-day audio and, and video as well. Uh, and that's that's a work in progress. But uh, you know, the Supreme Court is obviously the big fish there. They haven't allowed same-day audio for oral argument in more than two years, the last time being for the Obergefell case. Uh, and they've allowed same-day audio 26 times in their history. But... They they have the capability of doing live audio uh, from the courtroom, both for oral argument and uh, opinion announcements, and they haven't yet. But we're hoping with the big cases in OT seventeen that will change.
0: So so really quickly, so we'll we'll go on to the uh, buckets two through six just to get an overview. But sure. on that issue, for yes. example, on the. On the cases they have allowed it is 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 the is the is the rule or the rubric essentially like really high profile cases that on a one off basis they might do it
1: yes and they almost in their letters announcing it say something like really high pro- profile cases in on a one off basis they say cases with. I think the phrase is cases with heightened interest. Okay. Heightened interest is the phrase that they use. As and, opposed to
0: all the others. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, well, that,
1: that, well, that's sort of the point, is that the court is saying that this case is the most important case of the term, which is ridiculous, because if you're... Shelby County, for example, the voting rights case didn't get same-day audio. Um, one of the major gun rights cases, I think Heller did, but maybe the city of Chicago versus McDonald didn't get same-day audio. Uh, a number of the fi- uh, finance cases... Um, campaign finance cases, Citizens United might have, but McCutcheon didn't. So yeah. it, uh, everyone has sort of their own view of what the most important case is, and the idea that a justice would say that, okay, fine, maybe not all the patent cases that they've been taking in recent years from the federal circuit are, are, are have heightened interest, but at the same time, there shouldn't be a uh, a value judgment being made in the press office or in John Roberts' office saying that this is the most important case of the year, so for this we'll get a special, you'll get a special treat of audio being released the same day a case is heard. I think it's, uh, it's just, it's, its a, there's, there's no better word to describe the policy than uh, than weird.
0: It's just weird. <laughs> it's really weird. All right. Well, we may need to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, quickly on the other one. Sure. So I, the next one I think is, a, is related to term limits.
1: It is. Yeah. The, there's no reason that the justices should be serving as long as they are. I don't begrudge any of them for wanting to, given that they currently have the right under Article 3, but... I don't see any way that the founders assumed that the, that a life tenure uh, clause in Article 3 would mean a, a tenure of 35 years, uh, like Justice Stevens, or 36 years like Justice Douglas, or 33 years like Justice Rehnquist, or 30 almost 30 years like uh, Kennedy and Scalia. It's not just life expectancies that has changed over the last 230 years. It's just the idea of federal service has changed. Given the amount of power that the Supreme Court has uh, accumulated, the idea that you're serving well probably longer than Uri has been alive uh, for one, and then for two, just longer than the founders intended, uh, is something that needs to needs to be changed. Whether it's through a, an amendment or legislation, uh, most, most, frankly, two thirds of the American people want to change it. So we're we're helping to to push uh, interest and policies on this forward.
0: Okay. Well, will put a pin in that one. We'll definitely need to, to talk more about sure. that. Um, the next one, I think, is code of ethics, which you talked about yeah, at
1: the, the beginning. Exactly. Yeah, the Justices are the only federal judges that aren't required to follow the code of conduct for U.S. judges.
0: Uh, relatedly, perhaps, stocks and recusals?
1: Yeah, they don't r- explain why they recuse from cases. So, they get about 7,000 petitions each, each year, have about 200 recusals at the cert stage, and usually about half a dozen recusals at the merit stage. And generally, you can find the reasons for the conflicts of interest. I mean, if Kagan recuses, it's probably because she worked on the case when she was in the Solicitor General's office. If Breyer, it's probably because his brother's a federal judge in California, and he heard the case. But it's not always cut and dried, and they make mistakes. Every year, they're making mistakes in terms of recusing from cases that they shouldn't be recusing from, because there's a mess up on their conflict sheet, or they're not recusing from cases, and then... And then what happens, right? There's really no recourse, so they sometimes apologize, but they shouldn't be making the mistakes at all. And I think if they explained their accusals, they would they would be a little bit more attuned to what their potential conflicts are.
0: Okay, well that I think that certainly has to be true right? that's yeah. an interesting issue. Uh, bucket five. Um, financial disclosures very related, part and parcel of what we've been discussing. Exactly,
1: right? yeah. Just just put put them online. Have a little bit more consistency. Uh, you know, the fact that some of them, some of the financial disclosures are filled out by the justices themselves, and some of them get CPAs to do it. And have there's just a, a very, in addition to putting it online, it would be nice if there was a little bit more uh, consistency across the board in terms of when they're filed. I.e., we're still waiting for Justice Gorsuch's and and uh, and and how they're listing their assets. There's no way that Justice Kennedy only has four assets. That's but that's what it says on his form, and that's yeah. what we have to believe.
0: Yeah, Look, the car's not worth anything, guys. No. <laughs> um, Alright, uh, so in bucket six, public appearances, What? what is that about? Yeah, as much
1: smack I've been talking about, the justices, they're all smart, intelligent, thoughtful, funny people who are leaders in their own right, in a way that I feel like uh, the other two branches have a great deficit in right now, and I'd love to hear them speak. I've been lucky enough to hear Scalia and Stevens speak, but that was because someone sent me an email telling me, you know, if you're if you're when I worked for a politician the night before we went before we went home each night, we said, OK, Governor X is going to be appearing at, uh, you know, with the M, with the with the MTA, the head of MTA tomorrow at Penn Station. And and these sort of media advisories and press releases about the justice's appearance don't exist. So I would just, you know, despite the fact that the justices insti- institutionally are, are, are far behind as individuals, they're all thoughtful and interesting, and they should be announcing to the public when they are out in the public.
0: Great. Well, let's let's jump in and talk about some of these in more detail. Sure. Because some of them are, are fascinating to me. And why don't, why don't we start with term limits? Because I think that's, or limited terms, or how sure. do you want to think about it? Because that is one that probably anyone in the, in the world, but particularly lawyers like me and like our audience, um, we just kind of assume, oh, this it, this has to be a certain way. And just at at first blush, that issue seems like, well, wait, that's it's crazy. That's that's contradictory to what the Constitution provides for. Um, tell us a little bit more about your thinking on that front and also talk about I, I, when I reviewed um, Fix the Court's materials online and the term end report and was thinking about this issue, there were some things that came up that, from a policy perspective, were actually very interesting and intriguing to me. So, why don't why don't we delve into those, like the the, the specific timelines you, sure. you guys you talk about, and, and some of the collateral effects?
1: Sure. So, our proposal is legislative based. Currently, I think that there is an argument to be made that you say, look, Article Three guarantees federal judges' judicial tenure. For life, however, only eighteen years of which is what we believe shall be served on the Supreme Court and th- there are a lot of different legislative proposals. Fix the court has one that w- we released with uh about two dozen law professors. Uh, earlier this year, there's been a number over the last 10 years um, is when this move for a legislative change has been uh, popularized. But even I mean, even in the 1950s and, and, and sometimes in the 1930s, there have been some efforts here and there to try to do it statutorily. But the idea is that you would have a new justice come on the court every two years. Nine times two is 18. After 18 years, a justice would rotate off and and a new one would be on. And the idea with that is that, look, you know, Americans are working longer and longer, and there are things to be done as a federal judge in retirement. Just look at what Sandra Day O'Connor is doing. She's heard a few cases in the Ninth Circuit. She started iCivics, which is a great civic education organization. John Paul Stevens is writing books and giving speeches. David Souter has heard hundreds of cases sitting in the First Circuit. So, The idea of writing circuit, which is akin to what I just described with those three justices, uh, while it went out of favor uh, about a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago, but the justices shouldn't just. Be getting uh, death penalty petitions from the circuits that they're overseeing. They should also, whether now or after eighteen years of tenure, I think it would be great for them to actually go and sit by designation on the fifth circuit or the ninth circuit or the eighth circuit, and and really uh, and, and show leadership that again I think is is would be very helpful from a mentorship perspective from a, a jurisprudence perspective uh, and 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 I think that an 18 year term would give uh, the opportunity for them to do that
0: yeah so that was that was something that that's jumped out at me I, I was originally focused on some of the um I don't know, some of the political circus aspects of it and trying sure. to nip some of those in the bud, and we'll talk about that in a second. But but the idea that you could start to fertilize the circuits with some of this incredible expertise uh, by having justices on the back end of their tenure of the court go back and start sitting more mm-hmm. regularly on, on circuit courts by designation, uh, it seem, as a former circuit clerk, that I, I, seems like an incredibly attractive thing to help um, – Kind of spread the wealth and knowledge, and help and, and kind of raise the, the bar in terms of the quality of, of jurisprudence across the country.
1: Absolutely fascinating.
0: Um, so so that's one benefit. So that that's just a clear, just kind of policy. This this seems like a good. Well, that's idea.
1: why I brought it up first because you're a former circuit clerk. So. <laughs>
0: there you go. Um, let's talk about just what where I think the mind goes initially when you start talking about this sort of thing. Sure. Part of the motivation here, as I understand it, is trying to is recognizing the ridiculous. I, I don't. I don't know if we have an explicit rating on iTunes. I don't know, I don't know what like, <laughs> junk show that this that, yeah. that that the Supreme Court nomination process can be, and, and yes. it's turned into it, it, almost such. It, 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 kind of, it, there's a lot of gamesmanship that happens. Absolutely, I with, feel
1: yeah. like it gets worse each time.
0: Okay, so to, so let's talk a little bit about that. And, and how does like how, do, how does your 18-year proposal, having a new justice every two two years on kind of a regularized schedule, how, how might that affect the, the current gamesmanship of the Supreme Court nomination? I think process?
1: it would lower the temperature of the nominations. I think that you'd have uh, not only uh, a group of senators on the Judiciary Committee who are more used to these high stakes uh, nominations that both they and the American people would just you know if they don't, if you don't like this guy maybe someone two years later would would uh, better would come come through it would make things fairer from a presidential perspective because you have someone like Nixon who had I think four justices in three years and then someone like like him or not, Carter, no justices in four years. Um, and so so it restores fairness. The other thing I wanted to mention is that it could have the potential to change who's being nominated, right? There are all these wonderful these wonderful federal judges who are 58 years old, who are 62 years old, who are, you know, 56 years old, who are getting passed over because, you know, they're not 43 like, like Clarence Thomas or 49 like Neil Gorsuch or 49 like Sonia Sotomayor. So, uh, nothing against the three of them, but I think that There is, I think, an advantage to having older individuals on the court and not just finding uh, a baby justice who can who can step in and uh, seize eye to eye with the sitting president.
0: Yeah, it it opens up the pool of available judicial talent to the entire. Yes, which which is um, which is very interesting. So before we move on to kind of the cognitive wellness aspect, Mm -hmm. how do you think a finite term Mm -hmm. of 18 years or any other duration? But let's think about 18 years. Would affect the jurisprudence, and by this I mean, you know, for example, there are some there are some recent examples, Justice Stevens, mm-hmm. Justice Kennedy, today, where you have justices that may have been identified with a, you know, were nominated by a president of a particular party, or may have exhibited early in their tenure some sort of partisan inclination on certain rulings that maybe have moderated over time, um, <clears throat> and you see you, you, people would make the argument that Justice Roberts in certain cases might, you know, just understanding that there's a legitimacy a question floating around a particular case may Mm -hmm. kind of moderate his view you know there's all kinds of ways you could take this but from an institutional perspective there seems to be justices that are kind of taking the long view and playing the long game in terms of their opinions right and and how do you think this sort of proposal if these guys were coming in and out uh, men and women coming out 18 year terms how might that affect the way they rule or whether they do moderate or evolve over time anything like that i I think
1: it's hard to know, and, and I, I do agree that that is that is something that is a little bit of a challenge in terms of our proposals. That there's look, there's no way to know it. There's no way to, to game it out. I don't think any theory of, uh, of of political science necessarily bears it out one way or the other. But I think that it's possible, and my hope is that they just be a little bit more circumspect in their in, the, in their de- in their desire to move the law uh, rather than because they know it could. Bounce back the other way um so i uh, so I'm hoping you know and may, maybe maybe I'd be wrong, but I'm hoping that the jurisprudence would fo- fall a little bit it would be a regression towards the mean as opposed to what we have now, which is the um we don't you know we don't know with what the, the reproductive rights what's going to be legal there we don't know what uh it's going to be illegal on health there's just so many questions, hopefully the questions would be reduced, and you'd have uh, like I said a regression to the mean
0: hmm, interesting um so, one of the other obvious kind of uh, aspects of this limited term kind of fix is is about you know preventing justices from growing very old, yes in office, and you know just a fact of human life that towards the end you know your mental you know your mental acuity just degrades um, i I remember hearing stories i can't remember if it was while i was clerking or just from other clerks after my clerkship but you know you you hear stories about clerks stepping in and essentially putting on the hat and acting the federal so you've got kids first year out of law school (laughs) like literally making life and death decisions not nominated not vetted not senate confirmed um because for one reason only because their judge wasn't up to it or, or their judge you know, had kind of lost their ability to do the job. Now that's that's an extreme case and kind of a rare case, but I- in a more ordinary course way, there certainly have to be concerns. Um, you know, I remember when Justice Stevens was getting old, and the con- you know he's one of the most brilliant justices ever to sit on the bench. But sure. you remember the conversations Absolutely. when he would flub words he turned and then, ninety yeah, while he was still yeah, on the bench. Exactly. So so talk a little bit about the 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 wellness aspect of what you're trying to do.
1: Sure. So so I, th- th- I think there's there's two uh, sub. Uh, buckets in terms of in terms of wellness. One is uh, working with the lower courts, so specifically the the circuit courts, the circuit executive, circuit clerks, and pushing them towards creating what are called judicial wellness committees. There's one that was created in the ninth circuit about I think 18 years ago now, and it's a, f- a multi pronged effort that has uh, neurological experts give lectures, have uh, seminars at judicial council meetings on. Uh, Cognitive ability as you age. Having a hotline so any clerk or court staff member can call in to alert um, a neutral third party about the potential for cognitive decline, and there's follow-up steps there. And there's even a buddy system. So, so if you're a, ju- a judge, you're supposed to check in with your buddy, uh, someone on the court or off the court, just to be sure that you're you're doing okay, and that you know, forgetting your keys one day doesn't mean forgetting uh, key First Amendment precedents or whatever. So. I think that 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 model is great and it's something that I've been pushing the other Federal Circuit Court of Appeals to adopt and and, uh, it has been adopted in in the 10th Circuit and the 5th Circuit and the 3rd Circuit, the 1st and the 6th and the 8th are all working on theirs. So so it's something that we're moving towards and as much as there are going to be, it seems like for the the foreseeable future, all these vacancies on the federal bench, that means that senior judges are being pulled back into service more frequently and we want to be sure that... uh, Instead of uh, – th- that these judges and just really anyone who, who has uh, – who is an Article Three judge, life tenure judge, is capable of doing their job to the best of their ability. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's hard to get the Supreme – to figure out ways to get the Supreme Court to sort of buy into this. Uh, argument of judicial wellness. There's uh, the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act of 1980. Doesn't really cover the justices. There was something called the Breyer Commission report, which talked about aging judges tangentially. That came out in 2006. That doesn't talk about the justices. There's this view, just generally, which is consistent with the re- with the rest of what fix the court is trying to change, that the justices just are are separate and above and different from uh, the rules that apply to all of, all the judges. So if I create, if I you know when I spoke to the head of the judicial conference about creating a national judicial wellness committee, he said, no, thanks. So so I think it's, it's just also um, at the Supreme Court level. Having the justices and their staff just cognizant of of these issues, because a single incapacitated justice, as has happened in the past, has been a major blow to the institution. And and as much as I love and respect the court, and I know I'm trying to change it, but as much as I love and respect it as an institution, which I do, the idea of having a, a Justice Douglas staying on the court for nine months after a debilitating stroke, uh, would just did untold damage to the court that we're still feeling today. And I, I want to be sure that that doesn't happen again.
0: So that's actually a great segue, this idea that the, the court is different, the rules don't apply to them, to talk a little bit more about the code of conduct, ethics, uh, recusal, stocks, sure. all of this business. Because just as, as, a, as a as a categorical proposition, the court is kind of opted out of all the these rules and regs. Yes. Um, I, it, Let's talk more about what you guys – specifically what you guys are trying to achieve there. So you just talked about the you – know, the, the, legisl- the other the other branches, the political branches, are kind uh-huh. of unwilling to try to impose rules. There is certainly a, an interesting question about would, is it worth having codes and things that apply if there's no one really to enforce them? And does that do violence to the legitimacy of the institutions? <laughs> so, that's, like, that's tough. I mean, yeah. look, there,
1: there are – Look, there, there, are no, there is no recourse or reprimand for the justices other than the high bar of impeachment. If you are found guilty of hearing a case where you own stock and you didn't tell anybody and you left it off your financial disclosure report and you were a federal judge, as has happened numerous times and they've been caught a lot, um, you can get censured. You can get taken off cases. You can get uh, written uh, – uh, there's a proceeding that happens with the, the judicial council, and and it's it's a real shame. I mean, there are judges, uh, uh, Riel and portius and Hastings. Like, there's a number of ju- federal judges over the last ten or fifteen years who who have been um, blackballed for for doing this, and and for for good reason. I mean, they they clearly violated the the letter and the spirit of the law. Um, But if but if a justice does it, there is no recourse or reprimand.
0: Okay, so uh, here's so two two follow up questions. One, tell me how recusals, how do they work in practice? Is it literally the individual judge saying I need to recuse myself or does the court as an institution come up with policies that they apply internally in a completely opaque way? But like, for example, if everyone knows there's a potential conflict do five of the justices get to say you're out of this one? Or is it literally the the, the justice who would uh, potentially be recused? They're the only ones who can handle it. And two, let's make this tangible. Let's make this real. What are kind of the most egregious examples of, of maybe not in bad faith, but bad conduct that you've witnessed over the last decade or two?
1: Sure. So it is up to each individual justice as to whether or not they recuse from a case, whether it be at the merit stage or the cert stage. So, In my recollection, I can't think of any time, and and maybe it's happened in private, of justices sort of ganging up on others and saying, look, you have a conflict you need to – if anything, it's the opposite. When uh, Justices Thomas and Kagan were asked to recuse on the Obamacare case, Justice Roberts defended them and said, look, we have these standards. I mean, there is a law – it's 28 U.S.C. 455, if you want to look it up at home – that says if you have a financial interest in a case, you have to recuse. If you you have a – a relative that was involved in the case, either at a prior stage or at the current stage, and you're a justice, you have to recuse. Uh, enforcement again is lax on that, but the justices want to follow the law because they are the highest legal officials in the country, and
0: they say what the law is exactly. Under, yes, right. yes, yes.
1: And they and they generally do. They generally do. Um, in terms of. But but there have been oversights. In the last uh, three years, Chief Justice Roberts has actually missed a couple of stock recusals, once at the merit stage and once at the cert stage. Justice Breyer missed one. Justice Alito missed one. uh,
0: And and these are, they own stocks in parties? Exactly. So only three justices own stocks in
1: individual companies. The rest of the justices, and these three as well, own blended funds. So ETFs, IRAs, a lot of money market accounts, retirement accounts, life insurance accounts. um, And... That's great and but, but the fact- but yeah, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Breyer, and Justice Alito all own individual securities about fifty of them total, which is down from like eighty a few years ago, so we've been pushing the justices to sell sell off their their larger shares, so Alito no longer owns Exxon and uh Roberts no longer owns Microsoft, but the idea that three of them especially given that the chief is one of them, would have these individual holdings that would lead, not only lead to recusals, but lead to these mistakes. The fact that Chief Justice Roberts didn't realize that Texas Instruments was a party of a Superfund case that needed to, that uh, from which he should have recused, um, it's, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, the, the, they're only, the second you have a justice off of a case, that's leads to the potential for a tie, or maybe there's not a fourth vote for granting cert. So there are a lot of collateral effects down the line. And instead of owning these individual stocks, what Fix the Court wants is for them to put their money into a blind trust or to just divest from individual securities from the time that they're they're on the bench.
0: And just to be clear, since there has been some equivocation or, or lack of clarity recently about what a blind trust actually means. Sure. So the idea here is they could they could own individual stocks, but only if a third party is is choosing those stocks on their behalf, and they have no visibility into what actually companies they're owning. Is that how that would? would
1: yeah. Work? And I look, and the thing is, is that it's it's possible that justice. Will- Robert sees that example, didn't know that he owned Texas Instruments because he's kind of got a busy job. I mean, he's got three months off during the summer, but he has a a, a busy job and he's probably deputizing someone to set up an E-Trade account for him that he's not managing on a day to day basis. But at the end of the year, he's got to put what stocks he owns in a form uh, that the Supreme Court said is a legit form to have to fill out. So you see that, and you're just like, well, how do you sit on the Texas Instruments case if you own if you own a thousand shares in Texas Instruments? That's crazy. So there, these are this is just sort of these types of unforced errors that the court you know, that, that aren't look. So there's an article in USA Today last week talking about how the Supreme Court is a one branch that seems to work, and most of the times it does, but they're not helping themselves out by having all these unforced errors that. Over time, are is eroding its legitimacy and our faith in the institution. So, I'm, this is what fix the court is. I'm saying to the justices, look, you're doing great, but you're sorry, you're doing good, but you could be doing a lot better. And one of those things is not owning individual stocks when we've got so many other different ways to invest uh, in the markets these days.
0: So, in that, I think is a great segue. Let to talk. Let's talk a little bit more about broadcast. And I'm also just you mentioned it, the it seems a little bit like the only branch that's particularly functional these days but but am i right in thinking just i have this impression that the approval ratings even for the court, have kind of t- gone down materially recently is that true or not it
1: has it, uh, yeah the trend line over time is that it has gone down uh it's been it's been as low i think as, as 42 and now it's around 50 okay. but but historically it had been in the 60s or 70s yeah
0: um, Let's talk I mean, Let's talk about the broadcast work that you guys are trying sure. to do, because it is an interesting state of affairs. Like, for example, the Trump travel ban case in the Ninth Circuit, you mentioned earlier that that was one of the ones they live streamed the audio mm-hmm. yeah. of. I listened to it along with, I think, how many? 1.5 million people.
1: Yeah, C-SPAN ran it live. So that was – I don't know. We got their ratings that night. So it was uh – so it was about 1.5 million people tuned in to CNN that night to watch it. And then you've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands. The numbers are hard to find. But even just on the, the Ninth Circuit website itself, I think it was 137,000 web, uh, uh, streamed it. And then all these other websites linked to it. And, and so it's hard to know the, the numbers. But we're talking a, a large chunk of the country was paying attention.
0: So that's that's extraordinary. And one of the things that I, w- I remember thinking, I was, I was listening to it and making dinner. And I remember thinking at the time how how valuable it was for people to be hearing it. What'd you because, make? huh? Would you make? I have no. I can't remember. <laughs> can't remember. Um, but I <laughs> taco bowls probably. Is, <laughs> <you
1: know? laughs> I, th- I thought I was here for a culinary podcast. <laughs> exactly. So, you know. um, uh,
0: I remember thinking at the time it was extraordinary and valuable, not just because it's, it was an interesting and high-profile case, but because to the, to the extent the court is a subject of criticism, it's also it's it's often because people think. They're just playing political football and making policy decisions. And, you know, you could, you, there are some cases in which you could pretty fairly take that view. You have the one-off Bush v. Gores that come around. sure. But by and large, justices are making decisions based on precedent. And, and, and in fact, a lot of these decisions, and this is what I think is the valuable part, are driven not by some underlying factual determination. A lot of it's about jurisdiction. A lot of it's about procedural aspects that are very, very complicated. And, and, and those... Aspects of cases, which are often determinative, very rarely get fair treatment in the press, in part because the reporter is not equipped to talk about them because it's incredibly complicated yeah. stuff. Or
1: they don't have the space. Yeah, exactly. The, the reporters are great, but their editors are like, we, you know, I we yeah. know
0: that. You get three inches.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that still happens. I mean, yeah. it's not like there's these. Uh, I know most stuff's, most articles are online, but if it's, if it's in NewYorkTimes.com, it's not like they're going to let them wax poetic on a thousand words on jurisdictional things because they've got to uh, – They're just going to lose readership because most eyes would glaze over.
0: Yeah. Well, and then you've got people listening and hearing what the judges are asking, what the lawyers are answering. And they're not talking about whether or not it's OK to exclude immigrants from the United States. They're talking about, you know, procedural aspects of cases that it helps make. It helped kind of it democratizes the judicial process in, mm-hmm. in a way because it helps people understand, see behind the curtain what's actually going on. Similarly, I, I think it's been kind of an interesting and valuable time in other media like podcast, like the, 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 the you know, the popularity of serial, for example, is really sure. interesting because that kind of makes real some aspects of the criminal justice system that people really don't engage with. Uh, I also thinking about like how to make a murder or making a murder on Netflix. Same sort of thing. Like, I think there's a lot of interesting and potentially valuable aspects of getting people more directly engaged with the court. So um, talk to me a little bit about the effects of, broadcast access into into the supreme court or other courts kind of what what are you guys hoping to achieve uh, what, what from a policy perspective yeah. or like from a long long-term perspective what, what are we looking to do
1: education for me it's it's about it's about civic education it's understanding how the justices operate how oral arguments operate how you've got two intelligent attorneys arguing their hearts out for 30 minutes potentially However, we all know that it's a very hot bench at the Supreme Court nowadays. So, yeah, I'll, Justice
0: Thomas really doesn't let him speak. I,
1: yeah. <laughs> I was there on February t- 29th ninth last year when he spoke, and it was, <laughs> was there's was an audible gasp when he and he asked some great some great questions. And from my perspective, he was sort of leaning over to his left, so he was his shadow was cast over where Justice Scalia's seat was, and he was asking very Scalia-esque questions, so it was was a little eerie not only to hear him ask these questions, but to ask these questions in this booming baritone of of his, and he's got a great voice, but that so mirrored what uh, Scalia would have asked of the uh, uh, of the attorney, but but on a larger perspective, it's it's, it's education. It's understanding that the justices aren't exactly—they're not playing politics. Whenever I go to the court and you know I don't get a special pass because they don't much like me up there, but you know wait my five hours and 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 hear oral argument, I'm I'm always shocked and and taken aback how. You know the justices sit by seniority; they don't sit by which by party. So you've got Kagan and Alito next to each other. You've got Breyer and Thomas next to each other, and and often just to use the Kagan and Alito example, Justice Kagan will ask a question, and Justice Alito will be like, "Oh yes, good point. Well, well let me ask a follow-on question." And that that sort of back and forth and give and take happens often, very often, almost every oral argument at the court. And to see that these individuals who have been vilified by the left and right for what ver- various reasons and whatever de- arguments or decisions they've come out with, to see them working together as one. It's oral argument is almost like this this large problem. And it's like a group, it's like a high school group project. And there's nine individuals that are trying to come together to figure out what the heck is going on in this case. And it's very much additive in terms of how they ask their questions. And to see a group of individuals who have very different, well, maybe not such different backgrounds nowadays. Most of them are former appellate judges, but, you know. Short, tall, black, white, men, women, to come together and try to solve this problem collectively in a in a collegial way. No one's yelling. It's not like, like there's you know people jumping up and down on the on the floor of Congress like you've you've got in a, to, to to see the justices acting in a collegial way. It's something I think that's sorely missing in the civic conversation today. And being able to hear them live, which would lead to to greater coverage of argument, to see them. Live or or even tape delayed by a day, which would lead to greater coverage, would just bring more Americans into the conversation about this role that the court plays, and I think they'd be happy with the result.
0: That's great to hear. Um, earlier, you'd mentioned something about Gorsuch's financial disclosures not being available, and I think I, I recall reading yes. that, that fixed the court is involved in a lawsuit relating to certain of. Oh, so actually, no. The, so the lawsuit's
1: about something else. Oh, okay. So, so it's look, it's. I mean, Alito, I think right after he joined the court, also had a six-month delay on his disclosures. Because the disclosures are due May 15th, but they give you some they give you some lag time. So, I, I mean, it's the same, pretty much same disclosure that Gorsuch would have filled out had he still been on the 10th Circuit. So, I'm not exactly sure what the delay is. But he was asked for an extension, and he was granted an extension. And I'm expecting to, to see his disclosure sometime in the fall. I actually just uh, emailed with the office, and they said it's not a uh, disclosure's office. They said it's not ready yet, but they will be getting... Uh, some more calls and emails from me soon um, in terms of the lawsuit. So uh, back in December, we were I, me and my funders were sort of talking about like who's possibly going to be Trump's nominee and what do we know about them. And we realized a lot of them worked at DOJ uh, during as they were coming up through the through uh, through the system, through their careers. And it would be interesting to just know a little bit more about them. So I sent FOIA requests to. To DOJ, but also to, to universities, basically any public institution that any of the potential nominees was, any of the shortlisters, sorry, was a part of, just to see, you know, what memos they wrote, what just to get a better sense of what, of who they are. And, you know, we would have done the same for Merrick Garland, but it was pretty clear from the outset that he wasn't going to get a hearing or a vote. But so, yeah, so that was back in December before Gorsuch was even nominated. And then when he was, by the time he was nominated, enough time had elapsed that And DOJ had not responded to our Freedom of Information request uh, that we sued them just to to get the records. Uh, A few weeks later, actually, DOJ and the Senate Judiciary Committee worked together to put about 175,000 pages of documents from Gorsuch's tenure on the Judiciary Committee's website. Unfortunately, it was mostly news clippings. It was pretty just... Anodyne, boring. Um, this is what's going on in the world of justice. You know, this is all the articles that say the word justice in it uh, from 2006. So, so not, not, I mean, some of it was useful and just helped push the questions. I mean, Gorsuch had a meeting with Court TV. There about potentially filming some federal court cases. I, that, I think, is interesting, for, especially from my perspective. I had no idea that he had a meeting with Court TV. And it was actually, the meeting was set up by, by one of my former colleagues But back when I was doing consulting in New York, like, <laughs> five years ago, which was even weirder. I was like, I know that name. Um, but the Judiciary Committee and DOJ has agreed to keep 8,000 additional pages that only SJC staff could see. So, so it works. You know, you file a FOIA request, you wait a month to get it back. They didn't... Um, DOJ didn't respond to Fix the court within a month, so we sued them. So now it's litigation and in, in the DC district. And basically, uh, DOJ has until um, September 1st to get us a Vaughn index, which will just go through and sort of say what all the, all those documents are. I'm not look. I'm not looking for any bombshells. I'm not trying to denigrate Corset in any way. But the idea that DOJ would um, stonewall us on a very basic freedom of information request just is not good it's not a good look especially given all the stuff that DOJ has to deal with nowadays um, and, and, and so we're going to keep you know pushing it to the end and, and and just saying look it, 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 fine you want to do this with Gorsuch he's on the court but whoever the next nominee is maybe you can be a little bit quicker and we don't have to go to litigation to ensure that all the public records are accessible to the public
0: yeah excellent um, so uh, Probably, our last kind of substantive question for sure. you <clears throat> what's your prediction for what the future holds on these fronts? obviously you guys are trying to do a lot as we've heard over, over the course of this podcast. sure um, I mean I'd be curious to know kind of what you think are the highest priorities, but but e- even probably more importantly, somebody like yourself who engages with this every day, all day, where do you think there will actually be movement or development in the in the near term, so a year or five years
1: sure so so I think that. The justices are accelerating their their stock sell-offs, the three justices that do own stock. uh, I think that's really important, um, and that'll lead to fewer uh, uh, missed recusals. Uh, I think the justices are also... I know that at least one justice has recently adopted a software-based conflict check system. So that's basically a – instead of – and and, that, and actually a software-based conflict check system is required in circuit courts. So I'm trying to push the justices to accept it as well. I know at least one has. Uh, but I think that just with younger justices coming on, they'll be more um, equipped and used to, to dealing with this, this sort of thing, especially if they're coming from federal courts of appeals, as most of them ha- are um, – I think that the uh, audio will continue apace. I think more and more federal courts of appeals will live stream the audio of their arguments. Look, this is a a long-term thing. This is a story of moving things at the margins. The Supreme Court, uh, starting November 13th, will start allowing e-filing for merits briefs and reply briefs. So that's a big deal. They're the only federal appeals court, really the only federal court in the country, that didn't have that option. So that's changing. So again, it's like a little... I don't think that... I'm going to wake up one day and all of a sudden there'll be term limits and and live audio and a code of conduct and uh, uh, recusal explanations. I think that what will happen is each term at the margins, a few stocks will be sold sold off. There'll be more done on audio. There'll be more done on um, travel. You know, the justices are, I think, taking more pains now than they were even a few years ago to to not – gallivant around the country without reporting who who's paying for their trips i mean there are a number of trips that we know uh at least three of the justices i can think of just never bothered reporting um and they got reimbursed for so so i think that's happening less and less so i think i think the 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 level of discourse on this is being raised i think the level of authenticity and honesty and modernity on on, on these issues is being raised but it, but it is it is uh as, as 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 I recently was reminded, there are there are turtles baked into the architecture of the Supreme Court for a reason. That this is gonna it's it's slow. It's a lot slower than than you want. I think the turtles are at the bases of the lampposts outside on the plaza. Um, you know, it, it's a slow process, but we're here and 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 uh, we're gonna keep pushing for it, and, and hopefully we'll continue to move things at the margins, if not further.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing some of that with us. It's, it's unfortunately time for us to wrap up. Um, one last question for you, Gabe. If, if the listeners out there have a question or are curious about Fix the Court or want to get involved, what's, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Sure. So uh, the best way, I think, would be through uh, our website, which is fixthecourt.com. We also furnish a daily clips service. So it's called SCOTUS Daily S-C-O-T-U-S, Supreme Court of the United States, daily.com. And if you go to SCOTUS Daily, you can just sign up right there and you'll get, uh, we're actually taking August off on that, but uh, starting September 1st again, you'll get a daily list of all the Supreme Court news that you may have missed, uh, comes into the, your inbox around noon Eastern every day. Uh, and then we're, we're fairly active on social media, because that's sort of what you have to do nowadays, uh, for better or worse. Um you can be one of our uh, our Twitter followers or Facebook likers. so it's just facebook.com slash fix the court twitter.com slash fix the court that handles at fix the court uh, and and we've got lots of different uh, you know daily updates and, or sometimes hourly updates about all the goings on at the at the Supreme Court and and in the lower courts in terms of these uh, transparency and accountability fixes.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing a little bit about the work that fix the court's doing. Um, And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, We would love to hear from you about this episode or any other topics you're interested in relating to associate development or legal tech and innovation. Um, You can reach out to us through the blog, Black Lines and Billables, which you can find at blacklinesandbillables.com. Email us at podcast at blacklinesandbillables.com. Or social media, as Gabe says, tweet at us. Our handle is at BNB Legal, at BNB Legal. And our Facebook handle is just Black Lines and Billables. We'll be back again soon with our next episode. Thanks for listening.